you're listening to Sending the Experts with Georgina Durant. This podcast is all about teaching and supporting children and young people with special educational needs and disabilities, SEND. My name is Georgina Durant. I'm the host of this podcast brought to you by Twinkle SEND. As a former teacher in Senko myself, I wanted to create a platform to share some of the amazing things that my guests are doing to support learners of SEND. So whether you're listening on your commute, tuning in while walking your dog or curled up on the sofa with a nice cup of coffee, thank you so much for joining us. In this episode, I'm really excited to be joined by Dr. Emma Kell. Emma has nearly 25 years as a teacher and school leader and currently teaches in alternative provision, as well as working as a writer, speaker and coach. Founder and director of Those That Can Limited, Emma's energies are channeled into keeping great teachers happily in the profession. And as it's the start of the school year, this episode is going to be all about teacher or Senko well-being. And I'm confident Emma is going to give us some fantastic advice on this topic. Hi, how are you, Emma? Hello, I'm really well. Delighted to be here. Good. So I've touched a little bit on your background, but not loads. I'd love to hear more about your career and your books. But if we start first with your teaching career, can you tell us more about that and what's been your favourite role, maybe? Yes, I'm asking you my favourite role is a bit like asking me which one my favourite child is. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. What question? Um, (laughs) So my career so basically spans from 1998, so I think it is 25 years now, um, through to present day. Um, Most of it spent in in inner London comprehensives, uh, firstly teaching modern languages and then moving into English. Um, So love teaching in central London through the early 2000s which you don't realize how lucky you are do you it was it was actually it was the it was the time of education 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 there was yeah. funding everywhere it wasn't perfect but i remember taking really vulnerable kids from all sorts of backgrounds with all sorts of challenges remember taking them to berlin to Oh, wow. Barcelona to Paris and there were always sort of pots of money you could dip into so that's probably a contender for my favorite period is watching watching a child who'd uh, barely left Camden all his life on a banana boat in the south of France <laughs> brilliant or watching them successfully order ice cream in French and then victoriously eat their ice creams uh in in a um yeah in a park in Paris so those moments were amazing um I should say really I've been extraordinarily lucky my extraordinarily lucky that's hard to say in my (laughs) career um I have uh, had for the most part I've worked in schools where I've totally worked hard played hard my values have been matched you know obviously it's never been 100% plain sailing but working alongside brilliant people always learning being inspired so most of my career has been fabulous I'd say the second contender is really what I'm doing now so I'm working in an education support center in Watford called Chessbrook uh, and Chessbrook, uh, and I'll say a bit more about alternative provision in a moment, but Chessbrook is for children who have been unable to function in mainstream school, yeah. um, usually in a series of mainstream schools, it hasn't worked out. Um, and when they end up with us, it's usually because they actually have some kind, well, they, in fact, they all arguably have a, a, a special need of some kind, yeah. whether it's diagnosed or not, and their needs haven't been met, and they have found ways of expressing their frustrations at the fact that their needs aren't being met, which have ultimately, in many cases, led to permanent exclusion oh, from school. Gosh. Yeah, because so, this uh, is an area that I haven't touched on very much on the podcast, and I've been desperate to get a guest. And like my colleagues will know, I've been like, let's talk about alternative provision. I think it's something we need to talk about more, and something not everyone knows what it is. I think you know the term AP, and people hear it, but I don't think everyone knows what alternative. Even people in the teaching profession don't all know what alternative provision is. Can you explain for those that don't know what what it actually is? 
Yeah, I think I think that's I've been thinking about this. I think that's partly because it means slightly different things in slightly different regions. So my understanding, so I've worked in two alternative provision settings and with a number of uh, teachers and leaders from alternative provision. And my understanding that is it, it is essentially all of the children who are unable to be in mainstream school. Mm -hmm. so the cliche is that it's lots of boisterous young men who have you know push teachers downstairs and things like that mm. and and those there are there are cases of of poor decisions being made by boisterous young men with special needs um but um actually it also includes children who are too anxious to go to school yeah so in my last alternative provision setting there were a number of students uh, mainly girls actually who had uh not been able to go to school for yeah. as long as two years um, wow. And actually, you know, prying these young people out of the footwell of the car just to get them into the building for 30 seconds was a massive, you know, massive achievement for them. And we'd build up from 30 seconds to three minutes to half an hour just to be in the building. Yeah. Um, so, so, so young people who, um, for whatever reason, their mental health has meant they are, have been unable to go to school um, and also children in hospital. So oh, hospitals yeah. often come under alternative provision as well. Mm -hmm. uh, which I hadn't realised until recently either. So it's basically any young person who is unable to be in mainstream school. Um, mm -hmm. They used to be known as PRUs, pupil referral units. That's no longer used as a term, but the, the, the good old fashioned PRU, the cliche, I mean, the cliche of the good old fashioned PRU was a bit like a young offenders institution. Yeah. So when I first started working in alternative provision, I had friends who said, oh, watch out, don't wear any jewellery. Oh, don't worry, no, don't wear any jewellery. They might try and pull it off. And I had a male colleague uh, who went to visit for the day from mainstream. And one of his one of his colleagues said, take your tie off. Someone might try and strangle you. When in fact, of course, um, if you've been into an alternative provision setting, they are the calmest, mm. most well-organised, um, just most serene places to be because they have to be. Yeah. You, know, you have to really think about everything about the environment. No one shouts. You know, people eat together, you know, there are lovely routines around meals and break times. Um, uh, so, yeah, so yeah. that is that is my understanding of what alternative. Oh, thank you. No, I think people appreciate that. I think often there's acronyms or there's terms that you hear when you're teaching. And because there's the presumed knowledge that you know about it, you can't then get to the stage where you can ask somebody what actually it is. <laughs> And I think that's a danger, isn't it? Some people might be thinking, oh, I don't know that much about alternative provision, but who can I ask about it without sounding like I should know? <laughs> but yeah, useful to actually ask. Um, so you're passionate about teacher well-being, um, so much so you've written two books about this topic. And your first book, I believe, was How to Survive in Teaching Without Imploding, Exploding or Walking Away. I love the title. It's brilliant. Um, what made you want to write this and who's it for then, Emma? Oh gosh, so this is this is a big one. So I said that for the most part of my career, I've been really happy, really blessed. I did have a really difficult period in my career um, when I um, found myself in a school, I'm choosing my words carefully, you can tell, yeah. where my values were not aligned necessarily. My ways of working, my, 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 my effective ways of working weren't aligned to the way the school worked. And um, I had a really difficult year prior to that. And during that period as well, in fact, I've been doing some doctoral research on what it is to balance teaching and parenthood. So my own children were very young and I really wanted to dig into those feelings of guilt and that mm. feeling of never being good enough and that feeling of just, 
you know, um, just almost failing at everything all of the time that we often feel as teacher parents. And I, I am a stubborn optimist and I wanted to sort of demonstrate through my research that it is possible to be an effective teacher and be an effective parent. And through this research, I found some amazing inspirational examples of schools with flexible working and, um, you know, parents who are able to, uh, I don't know, you think about what role model you want to be. So they come home and they talk about their school day and their children therefore end up understanding more about the world. Um, and I also came across some really hideous examples of people's careers ending. Um, there was one line um, from a, um, a, a new mother who said to me, I just got sick of feeling as if I was letting everybody down all of the time. And, and, and um, you know, just, just horrific stories of, of, of people not being able to go to medical appointments, hospital appointments for their own children because the leave of absence policy didn't allow it. And then those feelings of guilt being exacerbated. So I wanted to do two things with how to survive in teaching. I, I, want, I wanted to shine a light. So I'm naturally positive, but I did want to shine a light into some of the darker areas of our profession. I was aware of... Um, what are known as sort of sausage machine schools. There's a book by uh, Sam Sims and Becky Allen called The Teacher Gap, which is brilliant. Um, and I mean, there's been a teacher retention crisis for as long as I've been in teaching. Yeah. But they they analysed some of the factors and they talked about these sausage machine schools. And they're these schools which basically chomp through early career teachers. Oh. Um, and, you know, these early career teachers come into the profession. They think, OK, this is how the profession is. I'm not staying for long. They stick around for a year, two years, maybe three, and then they leave teaching and that's it. And I found myself getting really angry, really angry with these people, these parents who were made to feel that it wasn't possible to be a parent and be a teacher um, with um, about these young people or not young people, new teachers who had put everything on hold to become a teacher and then left thinking that teaching is something that something where they need to feel inadequate all the time and need to feel stressed all the time. Otherwise, they're not doing it properly. So I wanted to shine a light into some of the darker areas of the profession. Mm -hmm. And then I wanted to talk to some head teachers and go into some schools where they really are working hard on keeping teachers and getting it right. And that's how I got into the whole area of staff well-being and, it, you know, staff well-being, not being the fluffy bolt on stuff you, you said in our preparation, you know, I just wanted a kettle which worked. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I would, I would have been more than happy with a kettle that worked and some biscuits in the staff room. That would have done me for well-being. <laughs> and, and, and some exactly. And, and if you think about poor well-being, well, a malfunctioning photocopier, 822 mm. Oh, the stuff of night. I actually think I had nightmares about the photocopier sometimes, <laughs> yeah. which is ridiculous, isn't it? Because that, that stress of knowing even if you get there early, you could be waiting so long that you're not going to get the resources done in time. It, it is a genuine stress and you wouldn't be prepared for your lessons. And if you've got a full day of teaching, you scuff it. <laughs> oh, oh, oh it, horrendous. And I had to have a word with myself about 12 years into teaching. I basically told myself I wasn't going to let technology and photocopiers make me cry anymore. <laughs> So long sobbing over a photocopy <laughs> at 8 a.m. Yeah. Um, so so yeah. So anyway, so that's how yeah, that's how I realized that staff well-being isn't about mm -hmm. the bolt-on fluffy stuff. It's about how people communicate. It's about if someone teaches in your classroom, what state do they leave your classroom in afterwards? Yes. Um it, it's about when you say good morning, just do you get do you get a, a cheerful good morning back again, or do people blank you in the corridor? Yeah. Um, do people go to the staff room? Do mm. they have a moment to sit and have a giggle and 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 decompress a bit about the school day or do people hide in their classrooms yeah. um, in in the gaps between lessons either because they just feel they've got so much work to do they can't leave their classroom 
or because actually they haven't formed those links and those bonds and they don't mm-hmm. have a sense of belonging with other colleagues. So in the end, um, you know, I'm on to wellbeing now, but I, I discovered through through all of my research really is that wellbeing is everything. It's yeah. about how we communicate. It's about relationships. It's about all those boring things that we imagine we don't have time to worry about, like like policies and procedures. You know, for years I, I thought policies, procedures, God, I used to hate writing them. <laughs> I used to hate reading them. Um, but actually they're really important because if yeah. your child's got a hospital appointment and there's no policy about how you apply for leave of absence and whether you're getting paid or not, then that can cause all sorts of, you know, perceptions of unfairness and confusion and stress and worry. So those things are really important. It, it almost more important really than the you know the big the, the the big picture stuff of these are our values and and this is how we work as a school so yeah. so yes so so my audience was really um you know i remember having this argument with the publisher that like, everybody <laughs> who works in a school but it, <laughs> every it, single person millions of teachers was, it was people going into into teaching yeah. um and giving them you know some real tools practical tools and strategies to stay in teaching in the long term and school leaders just giving them some practical tips around how they can effectively support their staff and communicate effectively without creating a whole load of extra work for school leaders, just small things yeah. people can do to ensure that you know people feel valued and that poor practice, because poor practice happens, it is challenged in a in a in a robust and and meaningful and supportive and kind way because no one comes to work to do a bad job. No, so, that's a very good point. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> how do we survive in teaching without it imploding, exploding or walking away? Then what are your top tips? This Obviously is you all... can't summarize the whole book <laughs> oh, <laughs> like a five minute answer. But um... this is the million dollar question, isn't it? How do we survive and thrive in teaching? So uh, what which top? OK, I'm going to share three top tips with you. Oh, then. Sounds good. So the first one is let go of perfectionism. So our profession uh, attracts an awful lot of people who really like to get everything right all of the time. Mm. You know, to be a teacher, you have to have done pretty well at school, pretty well at university. So a lot of the people who come into teaching have rarely failed at anything. Mm. Um, And actually, we are living organisms working with other living organisms. And we need to get used to the fact that actually things are going to go wrong. And that is okay. And I can sit here and say at the age of 49, after 25 years in teaching, that I taught a lesson a couple of weeks ago that just, you know, went completely tails up. Um, And, uh, you know, I thought it was going to be really good. I spent ages planning it. I thought, oh, I found something really cool that the children will chime with. And they had, they just, they just weren't having any of it on that day. And, it, and I left feeling a bit deflated and thinking, oh, I still can't do it. Um, but actually, you know, things will go wrong. Living organisms working with other living organisms and children are very, very forgiving. So, yes. you know, keeping an eye on the big picture. And often sometimes when it goes wrong, it goes wrong, but it goes in a different way that you're not expecting. I remember once teaching a lesson and I, we had this little tweeting sound. We wondered what it was. And under the cabinets in the classroom, I was teaching a science classroom and under the cabinets was a baby bird. <laughs> Yeah. that had had flown into that and I you know at the time I was like but my lesson plan you know I was a new teacher and I had a lesson plan and a structure and this baby bird was not going to fit in with my plan but actually it was a science lesson there was a baby bird and me rescuing it because the um we got the we got the caretaker to come and try and get it and his hands were too big to fit behind the cabinet but mine weren't so I was the one that was able to actually rescue the baby bird 
And actually, it was a wonderful lesson in the end because when we learned about the baby bird and it was it was it was lovely. But um, yeah, you get so set in your ideas of how the lesson's got to go that a curveball that's thrown at you can ruin a lesson for you. And in the sense, it doesn't always. It can they probably remember that lesson more than any other lesson I ever taught. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we are we are so hung up on planning and obviously planning is really important mm. I do still I plan my lessons I plan three versions of each lesson obviously I spend a lot of time planning but we have to accept that you know human beings are unpredictable yeah I mean this will show my age I used to work with a, an overhead projector and they were these these you should put, make these transparencies you colored them with pens and you put your transparencies on the projector and I, I was teaching German so you match the words up to the pictures but these projectors had a vent at the side so I had all these mini pictures oh, yeah. fastened <laughs> with a, um, I want to say safety pin, but I don't mean a safety pin, paperclip. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, and the paperclip had come off and I turned this thing on and the vent just sent these little pictures of sports <laughs> going all over the, over the classroom. And I was standing there in front of top set year nine German girls, all girls, <laughs> and they just, them just looking at me. And all I could see in their eyes was you absolute fool. <laughs> you know, just, just, just me scrabbling around the floor. Anyway, so things <laughs> will go wrong and that's okay. And things go wrong. For everybody and children are forgiving and if you're really worried about the direction a series of lessons or a scheme of learning is going in ask the children you know mm -hmm. ask them to tell you what's working and what's not because yeah. because they will tell you um the second one is the people you surround yourself with um so uh, you know this is so important you know and i know we're going to talk about this later but there is so much darkness and tragedy yes. in our profession at the moment and from the people I speak to and I speak to probably on average 60 people working in schools each week there is the sense of loneliness and isolation mm. is massive you know, it looks like a, it looks like a sociable profession and it is it you know it is it requires constant human contact but that human contact doesn't always give you a chance to be as honest as you need to be, be as authentic as you need yeah. to be. So surrounding yourself with those people who are going to lift and empower you, who are going to make you giggle, who are going to make you humble in the moments when you need to, you know, experience a bit of humility yeah. and, and just being really careful. You know, I'm not talking about virtual people as well as real people on social media of getting dragged into those swamps mm. of negativity. You know, the swamps yeah. of negativity on social media they wind me up as well and i find myself dragged in because my algorithms and everything else <laughs> and just be really really careful who you surround yourself with um and you know if someone inspires you keep in touch with them mm. is this i was thinking about this this morning you know it, it is such a small world in education and two of the people i'm working with now are people i worked with seven years ago yeah. people come back on the scene keep in touch with those people who helped you to learn and grow and were there at the moments when yeah. you experienced your greatest learning um and i suppose the third tip is around self-knowledge so there's two and i'm still working on this so there's, there's two things there really one is around pacing yourself and just to be clear on everything else everything i talk about to do with well-being i've made i've made and i continue to make all of the mistakes myself <laughs> i love that but, you know it's constantly under review it's never oh i've got well-being sorted right what should we do? <laughs> no. so that thing where we all many of us go at september at thousand miles an hour mm. yeah so we go oh it's september i'm quite fresh actually in fact i'm a bit sick of my family and friends i'm actually <laughs> ready to feel like a professional again 
really love to see the kids, all these ideas, all these grand plans for my vision and everything I want to fulfill this year. And I'm going to go at it at 100 miles an hour. And I'm going to stay at school till eight o'clock tonight because goodness, you know, the childcare is covered and no one really needs me outside school. They've had loads of my time during the holidays. So I'll just stay and I'll pop into school on Saturday and I'll pop into school on Sunday because I'm really enthusiastic about my job. And then of course you hit mid-September <laughs> and people are saying, when's it half term again? <laughs> yep. So, so knowing that shape of the school year and mm. just being, you know, setting those boundaries that you are stubbornly determined to stick to. So on a Wednesday, I will leave school at four o'clock. I will yeah. leave school at four o'clock and I will have an evening. Mm. Um, you know, we have in this house, we have family night on a Wednesday. So after seven o'clock on a Wednesday, nobody's allowed to do anything work related. The kids are in charge. They get to decide what we eat, what we watch. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah. So it's a really simple, simple thing. I am not going to, whatever it is, I'm not going to tell you what yours boundaries mm -hmm. should be, but whatever your boundaries are, whether it's an early morning dog walk before school or never working on a Saturday or having your work emails unsynced from your phone, really sticking to those boundaries. So that's self-knowledge. Oh, I and wish I'd met you when I was an NQT <laughs> and you could have given me this advice because everything you're saying I did like the whole September like oh yeah I'm a key I'm really keen to get everything done and I'm staying really late and I'm doing all of this and you just and then the school viruses all come around and you get towards the end of the school term and then you're just absolutely exhausted and you're thinking why am I why am I so flat and exhausted right now and yeah yeah and, and I do it as well and I, and I do it and I think oh I've done it again and <laughs> I don't do it and some year and it's like when you work part-time anyone listening working part-time you know I've done part-time really really well and I've done part-time appallingly so, so doing part-time appallingly it, it for me means working all the way through the days when you're not being paid <laughs> oh so yeah <laughs> Just check it or, or just not even not meaning the it's the worst kind of working. It's not purposeful, meaningful working. Yeah. You sit down and say, right, I'm just going to work for two hours and get some stuff knocked off the to-do list. Oh, no, 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 no. It's just checking your email. Yeah. And then getting embroiled in some decision making back at school or a mistake someone made over ordering a book or, or <laughs> you find out that someone's a bit upset about something and think, oh, well, I'll just check in and see if they're OK. And the next thing you know, your head is in school, but your body's yeah. outside school. Uh, and then I've done part time really well where I've said, right, unless the school is burning down or, or there's genuinely someone in you know, some kind of catastrophic situation. I do not want to hear from you and I will not check my email. If you need me, phone me. The only disadvantage to that one was that someone someone started phoning me when I was at my daughter's sports day and I thought, no, boundaries, boundaries. No, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not taking this, I'm not taking this. And they tried me six times, seven times, eight times. I eventually picked up the phone and they said, we've got Ofsted tomorrow. So ah. Oh, yeah, okay. Every rule. So there you go. <laughs> Things will go wrong. Don't be a perfectionist. Um uh, forgot what my second one was. The third one was around self-knowledge and boundaries. Um, and the second one was around networks. Yes, the brilliant. Around you with. <laughs> Fabulous. And your second book came out in 2020, and that was Teacher Wellbeing and Self-Care. So that's a similar sort of theme. Can you tell us more about this book then? Yes, yeah, so this book came, around, uh, came about with uh, my friend and colleague, Adrian Bethune. And what we wanted to do, see, interestingly, my first book's quite long. This The second one's quite short. And it takes a lot longer to, to write a short book than it does to write a long one. So what we wanted to do, and, and we're really proud, this book's been really successful. And um, what we wanted to do was take all of the research that we'd done. So he wrote Wellbeing in the Primary School, which has won various awards. I'd done How to Survive in Teaching and my doctorate. We wanted to kind of 
pull out all of this research that we've done, all of our experience, all of the teachers we'd spoken to, and really distill it into some um, top tips that people could take away and use tomorrow. So these are all things that they're all research based. There's a reading list at the back of the book. We can provide further reading lists if people want to go away and do master's research on this. But in, in, in essence, you can pick it up, you can read half a page and go, oh, I might, might try and do that. Brilliant. And you can go away and do it. And anyone at any level in a school can do it. Doesn't cost anything. Not all the strategies will work for everybody. And we're really clear about that from the outset, but all of the strategies in that book have worked for somebody working in a school. Yeah. And we deliberately chose the ones that we felt were most powerful. So, and, and I suppose being books. short as well, sorry, being short as well actually supports teacher wellbeing because you don't have time to sit and read books. So having a short book that you can dip in and out of is more realistic for teachers, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Here's a great quote. Here's an anecdote. Um, here's a model for how this might work. Here's a page you can scribble on yourself in the book uh, to try it out. There you go, bam. And if it works for you, you can take it away and use it. And if it doesn't work, then you haven't wasted any of your life. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. So what are the most common causes of stress for teachers then that you found? And we'll touch on, I'm going to talk about offset in a minute. So if we forget offset for now, because we know that's a huge stress mm -hmm. and I, I want to touch on that one. Um, but excluding offset at the moment, what, what would you say are the most common causes of stress for teachers? Well, the most common causes of stress, gosh, um, okay, this is, this is a big question. It because is. It's different for everybody. So, and it's something we talk about with well-being as well. So, so different things will stress you out to the things that will stress me out. Yeah. So I might get really stressed out if I say good morning to someone in a corridor and they ignore me. That yeah. is the kind of thing that will really wind me up. You might be a bit more um, precious about your possessions than I am. I'm very relaxed about possessions. <laughs> so I'll pop into people's classrooms and say, oh, there's a nice pink stapler. I'll just borrow that. Forget, <laughs> it. So just to be clear, different things stress different people out. But the the biggest cause of stress actually is rather than being external because we talk a lot about external accountability and hyper accountability and that i think is a problem is that we've internalized that deficit model mm. so we've got this voice in our head which says not good enough not good enough not good enough not good enough and that voice of course is bolstered and supported and amplified by all of those external measures of success so from lesson observations to performance appraisal to external sources of accountability mm. and, and so we have this voice so what most often i'll get is i'll get a coachy come on and they'll say i just feel like i'm crap at my job mm -hmm. i just feel as if you know people think i'm rubbish i'm not doing a good job i'm not doing I, i'm not good enough so that for me and then that just eats away at you and it's confirmation bias isn't it so if you yeah. feel like you're not doing a good job you then you know we all get like this you're you're overtired and you can't find you can only find one shoe in the morning and you think oh i can't even find a shoe teacher with a mortgage in a car and i can't even find a matching pair of socks or i can't <laughs> even make breakfast for my children or i can't even remember to buy milk and then it all and then yeah. the, and then of course the little things become the big things and and so that I, I think that, I mean, obviously workload, obviously workload is massive. And I used to argue that, I used to argue that workload was the um, was a bit of a red herring because teachers don't mind working hard as long as the work they're doing feeds directly into the student's learning experience because- Yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah, when you're doing work that feels like it's just for the sake of tick box exercise, that's the most frustrating thing because you're not there for that, you're there for the kids and you wanna make a difference to them. Oh, you're preaching to the choir here. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 exactly exactly so all of that 
um someone used to call it look i'm doing my work work so Mm. say oh, I, oh you'd, you'd come out of the classroom i remember once doing this and saying oh that scheme of learning went really well could you write it up <laughs> it's like no 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 i've just taught it went down really well with year 10 you can go and have a chat to them if you want to no 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 could you write it
the mirror i i i i've worked with two groups of head teachers since ruth perry's death yeah and uh, in both cases around 40 or 50 head teachers in one room and pitching those presentations has been a massive challenge because right. obviously many many people's lives were rocked by ruth perry's death absolutely i, I think you know it it, it prodded all sorts of deep feelings, memories, things, things head teachers had suppressed periods of time they'd been through and never talked to anyone about. So, um, you know, I'm really worried about the impact that's going to have on, you know, we've already got a leadership retention crisis. Yeah. Uh, and I completely, so I'm coaching people who are leaving headship and they get my unconditional positive regard. Oh my goodness, those people have so much to offer the world. It's really exciting, yeah. you know. But many of those people are actually very ill. One of them mm. wrote a book for me recently, you know, at 52, she had a series of cardiac events after her Ofsted. She can't be a head teacher anymore. The decision's been taken out of her hands. Mm. At the same time, in those rooms, you get people, and this was, um, I was in Gateshead not long ago, and I walked into this room, and it was actually the Friday after Ruth Perry's suicide had hit the headlines. And I had spent hours and hours and hours tweaking and 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 mm. and changing this presentation to get the tone right and i sat with this group of happened to be women and they were an slt team and i said how are you doing it's really tough at the moment isn't it and they said yeah but you've just got to get on with it haven't you mm. and i thought oh gosh yes actually you know that and that idea that you you don't well you don't have to we've all got agency you can choose not to get on with it yeah. you can choose to go and do something else or you can choose to just get on with it um, and get up each morning and do the best you can for your community. And 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 this thing about, there's one other head who I just want to talk about, and I will keep her anonymous, but she's very wise. She's had, you know, she had a complex life with a number of different personal challenges of her own, and she's now a head teacher. And, and she almost talks about, she risk assesses everything. So she kind of plans ahead for the worst possible scenario to take the heat out of it. So she's done that with Ofsted. So yeah. she's basically said, Look, I, I think I'm running my school really well. I've, I've, I've tapped into all the support, to all the feedback. If the same thing happens to me as happened to Ruth Perry's school, if we're downgraded to inadequate, I will um, take a deputy head job at a school down the road because I know I make a really good deputy head. And I know that that almost sounds simplistic and um, maybe a bit brutal, but she's almost she's 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 thought through what she yeah. would do if yeah um, and 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 to be the kind of head who, as one said to me the other day, who basically said, I have decided that I'm going to do what's best for my school, regardless of Ofsted is hugely admirable yeah and takes an awful lot of courage and to put that into practice i appreciate it, is incredibly hard so i know i've done a bit of a politician's answer there but i, no, you I haven't. i'm not a head teacher yeah i've not you know it's, it's the one it's one of the few roles in a school i haven't done um i nearly was i i, I was about to do the uh mpqh uh in 2019 oh, cool. um, and, and so every now and again i have a oh there but for the grace <laughs> yeah i don't think i'd have had that kind of courage i i'm not sure i'd have had the kind of resilience to be able to say oh well we've just got to get on with it yeah. i think i would have internalized and taken everything deeply personal because it's your school it's your name absolutely um, and your community and yeah yeah but i think things are changing there is i mean Good. I mean, loads of people keeping the momentum going. You know, Ruth yes. Perry's sister in particular, Julia, has yeah. been amazing at keeping the momentum going. I think things are changing and, you yeah. know, waiting for the juggernaut to turn around it, uh, you know, the system to change is always um, 
frustrating but there is a sense that actually each day I log on and there's another story and another story and another story and that that building momentum does give me a sense that yeah you never know when people are listening to this podcast in September because we're recording it a little bit earlier than September but when they're listening in September maybe there might have been some change yeah yeah (laughs) perhaps we don't know maybe um so when we talk back about staff well-being so I know there's been lots of examples of this mandatory well-being and I asked on Twitter you might have seen I asked on Twitter if people could give some examples of sort of mandatory well-being and the idea that well-being should be like we've spoken a little bit about it the idea that well-being is all about you know should be woven into the school life not an add-on a bolt-on and I asked people on Twitter (laughs) they've given me permission to share these but there's some some quite they're amusing but they're awful at the same time um examples of mandatory um well-being one of them says I once sat through a half a day session on inset telling us how important well-being was where we practice breathing amongst other things. And the, the day before term started, I was desperate to get in and finish setting up my classroom. I'm really anxious about starting a new school. And that session made it far worse, which is mm. awful. And then another one where someone said, we had an inset session where we had to spend 20 minutes appraising a raisin. We had to look at it, <laughs> notice it, feel it, sniff it, hold it in our mouths. I kid you not, that was the language used. <laughs> oh, yeah. Lord. Yes. So this, oh God, and this is a really, you know, I I realise again, I'm speaking as a wellbeing facilitator. And I said early on in this, you know, not all of the strategies I share will be for everybody and not every wellbeing session will be for everybody. I mean, I've seen some brilliant ones as well in my time. Compulsory chocolate. No, we had wine tasting after school on a Friday. And then suddenly at the last minute, someone remembered that not everyone drinks alcohol. So it was (laughs) a choice between wine or chocolate. And we all stayed until, or had to stay until four o'clock on a Friday tasting wine or chocolate when actually everyone wanted to go home. There was, my favourite one, I think, is compulsory yoga for all staff. Um, yeah school with the best will in the world did but even even genuinely nice well-meaning things can really backfire yeah so what i always say to school leaders is is you know i'm not going to give you a list of extra things to do when i'm talking to you about the well-being of your team i am genuinely not asking you to go and design a well-being room with wind chimes because someone will hate the sound of the wind chimes and someone will hate the color you've painted the room and 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 that lovely idea that when you buy um so this this amazing school bought staff pizza on the oh, isn't that lovely first yeah, day, lovely. day of term thought oh everyone's going to be a bit knackered well you know everyone's going to be a, it was after christmas everyone's going to be a bit knackered coming back we'll get them pizza and what happened well the first thing was they hadn't taken into account vegan and gluten-free so there were a whole group of staff saying well do you even know us <laughs> no, did you even ask and then the second thing that happened was that some staff just left their pizza boxes and all their all their oh, rubbish. No. And then the SLT member who'd stopped on the way to work to buy the pizza, so left an extra hour early and organised their childcare yeah. to hour early, then had to clear up. Oh, <laughs> so, so their well-being was impacted. By it. It can, uh, but but I really did. So I was I was in a school, a lovely school. Um, in a local town at the beginning of when was it? It was it was a it was it was just after the holiday, just after Easter, and I was doing a, a whole day on well-being, and I was really excited. So I went on Twitter and said that's my favourite thing, a whole day on well-being in a primary school. And someone came back to me and said that would be my idea of hell. Mm. Please let me get on with my marking. So what I did actually was I said at the beginning of the day, I said, look, I I read them the tweet, and I said actually, I'm honestly, you know, I've spoken to your head teacher you can choose to be in this room or you can choose to go off and sort out whatever it is you need to sort out or you can stay till break and then you can go off or you can you know it's entirely up to you 
Yeah. Um, and I'm very relieved to say they all stayed. But, but <laughs> Can you imagine uh, if they'd all gone, Emma? <laughs> well, no, but I checked with the head teacher and I said, I really, I really do want this to be, you know, meaningful. So what we do in the wellbeing sessions is we talk about the students. We look down yeah. the mountain at the things we've achieved. We reflect on the things that are challenging. We talk about the national picture and the influence that all these different factors are having on our schools. And we talk about our own stress levels. That was that's a lovely session. So we get people to reflect on how they're how they react when they're stressed. Yeah. And then we because it was a small school, we went around the room and everyone was able to talk about you know what what happens to them when they're stressed and what works and what doesn't and they were saying things like please don't try and fix the problem for me please don't yeah. tell me what to do and, and in fact you know one of the one of the staff said oh my goodness i'm a fixer i always go around trying to fix people's problems i'm going to stop doing that now yeah. so what we do with the well-being sessions that that i run that adrian runs is we really try to get into the fabric of what it is what it is to be a teacher or a ta or a um, finance manager in this school and yeah. and how we could and just take that moment to reflect on how we're genuinely feeling about our jobs and ourselves and how yeah. it that sort of well-being would I would have appreciated the add-on stuff where you had to do something after school I would have been one of the teachers that wanted to go off and do the marking and just get everything finished but yeah when you're saying that sort of well-being where you're discussing how you're feeling and you're discussing the actual problems in school and how they could be resolved and how different people are dealing with things in a different way that's actually constructive isn't it and useful Mm, mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, oh no, I've seen some terrible stuff. I, I, I sat through a wellbeing session where everything was a car metaphor, okay. and it was all about keeping your gearbox well oiled and 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 and, and you know, <laughs> I, I just I sat there thinking, oh my god, I don't want to think about catalytic converters and pipes. I just I don't know what you're talking about. I don't even understand what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you get. I mean, you get all sorts, honestly. Um, yes. Absolutely. So our listeners are predominantly SENCOs or SEND teachers and head teachers. And these roles, like we've touched on a little bit, they come with additional responsibilities. I know lots of roles have additional responsibilities. Um, and obviously I'm biased in saying that SENCOs and SEND teachers have extra responsibilities, but I do think they do. You know, there's legal paperwork that's liaising with other professionals that's been responsible for children's medical needs. Um, you know, sometimes even supporting children with life-limiting conditions and supporting their families through that. There's a lot. Um, how how can we... Re- how, because their responsibilities, like we said, are, they're not a tick box exercise. Those responsibilities are genuine responsibilities for, that are, you know can be life and death. They can be hugely important for children's well-being and children's time in school and for families, etc. How do we actually make sure these responsibilities don't become overwhelming? Because for a senko, especially a teaching senko as well, like you just don't have time for all of this. <laughs> There's just not the time to teach and then the headspace to look after all of these people it's it's so much and I just wonder yeah how do you make sure it's not overwhelming how what can they do right well I I don't think it's a coincidence that five or six of my recent coaches have been either SENCOs or DSLs and they've come to me without their schools knowing saying I just need someone to offload with I just need someone to talk to I would argue from my perspective that it is the hardest job in a school at the moment yet to be a SENCO and to be a DSL because you're absorbing all of the pain and all of the disadvantage and all of the inequity from society. You're on the front line, you're in school, schools remained open. I know there are lots of organisations doing brilliant work, but there are lots of organisations outside schools still really struggling, massive waiting lists, getting hold of those specialists. But you're the one the parents are going to go to. You're the one whose name they know. You're the one they trust. And the risk, and I will talk about about some ways forward in a minute, but the risk is that you end up, and these are true stories, one 
DSL, I think she was DSL and Senko, and she said she sleeps with her phone by her head because she a small small community she said i'm the only one these families trust oh gosh the, the weight so of that she was when i met her not sleeping a full night because she was at the end of the phone for those parents um i've got another colleague who says he never um has his cpoms his cpoms is on all of the time so the, the safeguarding reporting system yeah is on all of the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So if he stops at a set of traffic lights, he checks it. If he wakes up in the night, he checks it. In the middle of a holiday, he checks it. Um, and 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 I can see, and and, and, and he was quite, you know, I, I, I did my usual thing on boundaries and he said, but Emma, it's not that simple. Mm. And and I, I get it. But then I do work with another very wise head of safeguarding um, in a school. And she basically said, look, we're an educational institution. We are a school with the best will in the world. We're not GPs. Um, we're not we're, we're not social workers. We're not we're not psychotherapists. We're not we're not qualified to diagnose some of these conditions. No. And, and so just remembering, you know, we are a school. So if it's during a weekend and it's during a holiday, it's so hard to do this, but it has to be, it's somebody else's job. Yeah. Um, because otherwise the risk is, you know, and, and I know I, I'd be really interested to see data on this, but I strongly suspect that we're going to be facing, we probably already are facing a Imagine. massive shortage of Senkos. Yeah. Um, because these you're going to burn out, you know, if you're yeah. listening to your Senko and unless you put those boundaries in place and have the support, for goodness sake, of your SLT, your governors, your academy chain, whoever are those powers that be are to say this is not sustainable in its current form. You know, I am I will I am prepared to work yeah. 50 hours a week, 55 hours a week, 45 hours a week, whatever it is. But beyond that, I am going to risk burning out. So I yeah. need help. I need support, I need capacity, and I need you to, to support me in that. And, and that is so hard. It's so easy for me to say. And again, I'm not a Senko um, because you're absorbing the pain. You're absorbing and you're absorbing the triumphs, too. But it's all emotionally hungry. It's emotionally yeah. hungry work. Absolutely. And you will have people at home or people, people you know, outside work who love you, who yeah. need you. And it's that awful truism, isn't it, of, um, you know, you're um everyone's replaceable at work but you're not replaceable at home yeah um and and you know i mean it, it's awful but you know head teachers who die get replaced within yeah. a couple of weeks because they yeah. have to be yeah teachers who die you will if you if you're listening and you've worked with a school where you've lost a member of staff you will know that an ad for their job goes out yeah pretty quickly but at home to say, you know, my mom, dad, sister, friend sacrificed their life to this work. It, it the cost is too great, and and I know, and I, and I and I get it. And we're in such a broken system in so many ways at the moment. Yeah. That because because one more thing on this because schools are so good at being resilient, absorbing tasks shrugging their shoulders and saying, well, let's get on with it anyway. We're so resourceful. We're, you know, we will, you know, you can throw pretty much anything. I'm not going to use specific examples because I'm aware of anonymity, but you could throw pretty much anything at a school 
and then say, right, okay, so who have we got? So we've got this, we've got this, okay, we'll move this TA around, we'll create this safe space. Uh, we've got these resources, which I think might help. We're just gonna call in this expert that we know and just ask them a favor. It, we will deal with almost anything, but because we'll deal with almost anything, it's almost as if we're taken for granted yeah, by the powers that be. So you just suck it up. Oh, the school will deal with it. The school will deal with it. The school will deal with it. And And, and at the moment it's like, you know we're starting to creak under the pressure and it, it does genuinely worry me and I am an optimist but I'm yeah. no completely I agree with everything you say and it is worrying and I think there's yeah it's getting it's too much and at what point does it become too much and people can't manage and and yeah what happens to the system then it's it's frightening so if there's a so last question then if there's a teacher listening right now who started the school year and is already worrying how they're going to cope is there any nugget of advice for them to help them through the first few weeks of term? Yeah, you know what? For everything I've just said, teaching is a really joyful job. <laughs> honestly, it honestly, no, it is. unpredictable, silly moments, the moments of enlightenment. Children are brilliant. I haven't talked much about children in this podcast. <laughs> That's okay. Children are awesome. They will say and do the silliest things. They will they, they will tell you your shoes are fabulous. <laughs> um, if, if you're being observed and you're acting up for the observer, they'll say, Smith, sir, why are you being weird? Um, <laughs> no, they, they'll just, they'll come out with, oh, brilliant, you know, of men and mice instead of, of mice and men. All these silly little brilliant moments. Yeah. Capture them somewhere. Yeah. Because actually, if you are entering the profession, you know, congratulations and welcome and it is a noble profession and it is a joyful profession. It's a profession fraught with challenges, but but celebrate the wins, yeah. celebrate even the tiniest wins. If a child leaves your detention and says, thanks, miss, go, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I the kids that say thank you. Yeah. Oh, bless them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, or, you know, the child leaves your lesson and says, well, it's boring as usual today, miss. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Or they remember something you taught them three weeks ago. Yes. So whether it's a notebook to capture it in or a little note app on your phone or someone, you know, a buddy you talk to in the staff room, because we do have a negativity bias as human beings and we will always, yeah. and we have a negativity bias as a profession and we'll always lean towards that deficit, not good enough model, unless we deliberately focus in the other direction and there is so much to focus on in the other direction absolutely and i think you're right we haven't spoken about kids enough because they are absolutely brilliant and they do make the job what it is don't they they make it absolutely fantastic and um yeah really really good fun so if people i'm sure people listening to this and watching this might be thinking uh, we need to find find out how to get in touch with you perhaps for some training or for some coaching or whatever how do they find you <laughs> always sounds like a dodgy question how can they find you emma but how can they <laughs> i'm not very hard to find actually um, so uh, i am on twitter most days at those that can uh tweeting about education and dogs so if you don't like dogs sorry um, <laughs> you can email me emma kell e-double-m-a-k-e-double-l at me.com uh and i'm also on linkedin so you can find me on there under dr emma kell so yes and I'll put some links to that as well as some resources we've got on wellbeing and the names of books, etc. I'll put those into the show notes. So if you're listening or watching, if you have a look under the show notes, you'll be able to find links to all the things we've been discussing. So thanks again. That's been brilliant. It's been really useful. Thank you so much for having me. 
Isn't she brilliant? What a fantastic guest and some really useful bits of advice there um, for the start of the term. So I hope the new academic term goes well for all of you. Please make sure you subscribe to the channel either on your podcast provider or on YouTube and share this episode with people. Tell them that you're listening. Tell people on social media. Thanks again for listening and watching Sending the Experts with me, Georgina Durant.